from Kurtco Media. The beauty of collecting is that it gives you an opportunity to put things in context and you get to compare one with the next. And then all of a sudden it becomes a more valuable experience and a more gratifying experience, or dare I use the word, a holistic experience because these things don't live in a vacuum. That was the voice of Robert Ross, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. Hello, my name is Eddie Sato, and this is Cars That Matter. And this is going to be a very interesting and very different episode of the show you've been used to listening to because some guests, some guests on the show, you know, of course, you've known we've gotten fascinating people over the years, but some guests are really hard to wrangle into the studio. They're difficult. They take time. So we've had to completely retool the entire show just to get this particular guest in here to opine just a little bit on cars that matter, but more importantly, on why they matter. And it's most likely to you in the audience, this voice has been a familiar voice. You've heard the voice. And perhaps when listening to an interview, you've said to yourself, well, wait a minute, I love the guest, but I wish I could hear more of that story. So today we're going to go into someone who's a dear friend of mine, but even more importantly than that, someone who has something to say that's just driven by something that I think we all wish we had more of, which is passion. Because our guest today is a man of many passions. I don't think he even knows how many passions he has, but we're going to learn more about those today. And his name is Robert Ross. Yes, Robert Ross is our guest today. Robert, welcome to the show. Eddie, I am speechless. Well, I hope not. I'm leaving if you're speechless. (laughs) Well, I am. I haven't had such an encomium since I was introduced as the class president in sixth grade. So that's really quite something, Eddie. Thank you for that. And I'm going to do my best to come up to the plate for our little conversation today. On your website, you're known as a man who doesn't own a TV, but loves owls. He's fascinated by owls. So anyone who's as quirky as a guest star on an Avengers episode is welcome in my studio today. And of course, if you know Robert through his past, which Robert is probably, and you can correct me is best known through the pen, through his writings in the Rob Report on so many different things, not just automobiles. There's a lot of people you meet who are car guys, but Robert is kind of a luxury guy. He's this man of many passions. So I wanted to ask you, Robert, a little bit about what passions did you have as a child that kind of took you into the reinvention that made you who you are today? What were your childhood passions? Well, it does go back to the beginning, but I think so many passions really do. I had no brothers and sisters, so I had a chance to grow upon my own. It reminds me of the remark by the jazz critic Philip Larkin, who wrote once that he didn't much like people when he was a child. And then when he grew up, he realized it was only children that he didn't like. <laughs> so growing up, I, uh, I was pretty much on my own, left to my own devices. I had some good friends. But I also learned to love nature, everything from insects and reptiles and birds and all the great discoveries that you'd make, collecting rocks and minerals and whatnot. Those were some of the greatest discoveries. But the word there was collecting, because I think some youngsters are inclined to want to collect things, put things in order, try and understand what goes on around them, whether it's a stamp collection, which of course I had and still have rather avid about that pursuit. Philately, it's not something that lands you in jail. It's actually something that provides great pleasure. And uh, (laughs) I recommend it to anyone, especially in this last year of lockdown. So, you know, it's all these collecting things. 
And then, of course, I was lucky enough to have a dad who liked cars and remember his little TR3 and his Jag Mark II. And then there was a Porsche 912 and some fun stuff that sort of came along into the mix. So really having an opportunity to grow up with some interesting cars was obviously the impetus that led to some more serious automotive pursuits. Although I I have to say it's really been a great hobby. And I think regardless of whatever professional aspects come with the territory, it remains a hobby and a passion more than anything else. Can I ask you a little bit about collecting, Robert? When it comes to collecting, do you consider yourself to be a completist or do you collect just the things that move you emotionally? You know, that's an interesting question, Eddie. I was having a conversation with a tribal art collector, dealer friend recently. And we were talking about just that, the notion of completing a collection by having one of each, so to speak, or conversely, the notion about having the best of many things. I think as a collector matures, it becomes a focus of not so much the quantity, but the quality. I know a collector of Japanese woodblocks who has effectively limited himself to 50 objects instead of amassing a collection of potentially hundreds or maybe even more examples. It's simply a matter of having the 50 be the best that he can have. And if you bring a 51st into the collection, something's got to go. And I think these are sort of little mental disciplines that collectors arrive at if they're serious about what they're doing. It's hard for me to imagine a collection of 500 cars. It's sort of like King Solomon with 300 wives and 600 concubines. I mean, that's really not something any man should wish on himself. Well, you may have something to say about this too, is that so much of art now is just going into a new frontier of digital, where the very first Christie's auction or somebody's auctioned off a digital piece of art where it's virtual, it's not even physical, which kind of brings me to think that in the days of memory cards, people by source of the lottery create great photography collections by shooting everything versus you having to make that decision when you're holding a wet film camera and saying, well, what's going to make it to my one of 36? You kind of touched on that a little bit. And I feel like part of collecting to me, and I'd love to hear what you have to say is it builds a power of observation and you collect things based on how it rewards your close inspection. So you look at something, especially fine automobiles and cars, there's something upon that deeper dive, that second look, that deeper appreciation that's kind of at the heart of an art lover. How do you, when you when you decide what that 50 is, what turns your clock To me, the words that sort of encapsulate this discernment is a word like connoisseurship, but it's so loaded with pretense that I'm a little reluctant to use that because the minute one claims that sort of acumen, it really puts them in the category of being an insufferable bore. So I think it's more of a gut thing. But clearly, in the case of pursuits that involve art, music, literature, whatever it happens to be, the aesthetic underpinnings and the craft have more to do with what determines that a piece is great than do other outlying factors, provenance, or the history that surrounds a piece. But With cars, it does become a more complicated equation because it's not just the way they look, but it's the way that they've been engineered. Sometimes the things that you don't see, whether it's a beautiful powertrain, a V12 engine, or a brilliant suspension, or maybe the history that surrounds a car, something like a World War II Jeep is hardly a beautiful thing, but its role was so significant in forming the outcome of the 20th century that it becomes important by virtue of that. So I think with cars, understanding what is, in fact, an important car has to do with a lot of things, but ultimately, 
ultimately though, and it does come down to the way they look because you have to look at them even when they're shut off. I mean, you've got to look at them when they're in the garage. You've got to look at them every time you walk by. Well, art should reward you every time you look at it or sit with it or have a cup of coffee with it. But what was it about the 1977 Lancia Scorpion being a special <laughs> car to you back then? What was it then? And I totally agree with you that it's about the gut. It's how you feel. That's how you choose relationships come out to how you feel with the other person. What was it about that car? Wasn't that your first love there? That was the first new car I ever bought. I was a young guy. I think I was 22 years old. And I worked hard to be able to get that car loan. To me, the Lancia Scorpion or Monte Carlo, Beta Monte Carlo, as it was known in Europe, was really a brilliant Pininfarina design. And of course, as close as I could come to a Ferrari, uh, the fact that it was like an 87 horsepower, smog gear choked engine for the American market made it somewhat irrelevant. The car looked remarkable and I think looks remarkable today. But it was a way of really getting to know what was at the time a very exotic machine, even though truth be told, it was a Fiat. And I think that car was a bit of an outlier, Eddie. I mean, it was certainly not a common car. You did not see one every day. In fact, you probably wouldn't see one every month, even in Los Angeles. At that point, I realized that sometimes it's worth the pain to get a little bit of pleasure by virtue of great design. It's so funny because we as readers get an opportunity to read reviews you've written of so many different kinds of passions. For me, it was a father-son thing that got me to really love cars, kind of like baseball. Was that dynamic a part of tipping the car passion into the front room and the maybe the art passion? Later, you got an art degree, I think at UC Santa Barbara. And so later on, those other things might have fallen in and then your nose goes that direction. What was was it about cars? Well, it's true. Again, all those little pieces of aesthetic early on. My dad was an architect and worked with a bunch of the mid-century guys in California. Back when mid-century was the present, I had a little Ames hanging all over my crib. I mean, I was literally born and raised with this stuff. The car stuff came in and my dad had no money. So for him, every car was a bit of a stretch and a struggle. But I remembered helping him rebuild the carbs on those wicked Solex carbs on the Porsche were causing him fits. Every weekend, he'd try and tune it up and we'd have fun with that. I remember going down to Auto Zipper in Beverly Hills on Wilshire and Maple when Bob Estes had the Lamborghini and Porsche showroom and seeing my first Lamborghini Miro sitting in the showroom and just marveling that such a car could exist. That was probably around 1967. That sort of opened up a whole new world to me that a car could be so beautiful. Then going to the auto shows in LA, I think 1968 was the first auto expo. Lamborghini had their Mazal show car there and there were all kinds of treats and rarities, just amazing things. I can see how cars was so influential and was there, but you really did pursue art and your identity in school and so forth too. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what drove you and what your, because you have so many passions, Robert, what drove the art side passion or the print passion or engravings, things like that? Where did you venture down that little rabbit hole for a while? Certainly as a kid, you know, I used to draw a lot, started painting, I think when I was about eight or nine years old. It's kind of like the kids, they throw a violin into their crib and they start playing Mozart by the time they're three. Well, for me, it was a paintbrush and I was very interested in painting and drawing, studying on my own. And my dad being an architect had quite quite an artistic sensibility. He was kind enough to dissuade me from pursuing that profession because I think there's no one more poorly compensated given their educational requirements than an architect. I mean, nobody works harder to go to school to get degrees and all that and is as poorly remunerated. So I thought, well, if I'm not going to make any money in architecture, maybe I'll not make any money in art either. And went to UCSB, met some great people, had some great teachers. We had guys like Buckminster Fuller mm. come to visit us. We had guys like Jean-Pierre Rampal 
all musicians, thinkers, philosophers, architects, artists. It was a brilliant period of time and left there, came back to LA and started doing what most guys with an art degree do, and that's get a job. I was mopping floors of the steam plant at UCLA for some time. So I realized that art and remuneration weren't necessarily one and the same. The gentleman who brought us together, who's an artist who went to school with you, was Jay Fisher, incredible artist and fine gentleman. And he told me about this insanely cool piece of art that you made that involved mud, a refrigerator, a chair, and some rats or something that you had created some unbelievable piece of art. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Why refrigerators matter? You mentioned a best friend, and that's Jay Fisher, and we're friends today. He's a bit of an inveterate collector himself, and we've both kind of gotten into cycads over the last recent period, but that's a whole different conversation, cycads that matter. Jay and I were artists in school together. Jay continues to be a working artist and fascinating character. You know, conceptual art was certainly of great currency back in the early 70s, and it was about the concept and manifesting those concepts, whether it was earthwork or performance art or whatnot. I was trained as a painter, so for me, it was always a matter of putting paint to paper or paint to canvas, but certainly I got off on a few tangents too and created some sculptures that had a little more grit about them. The refrigerator and the mud and the laboratory rats being one of them. We had loaded up a 50s-era refrigerator, taken it to the front end of our college hall and surreptitiously placed that in the front of the building about two o'clock in the morning. Here's what I found extraordinary about that is that normally people like a car collector or a completist, you find great joy in the precision or the discipline of the engineering and all those kind of things about what an automobile is. In other words, these are discernible things, they're measured. But for the same individual to have passions that go completely into the abstract to me is insanely impressive and worth noting because it shows this broad spectrum of just sheer passion. I think passion, whether it's your childhood or whatever, is based on curiosity. And the curiosity is really the essence of it. We'll be back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Robert Ross. We're very fortunate in our lives if our passions can turn into our occupations. And we kind of look back at our blessings and say, boy, I'm so glad that work is nothing more than play I want to do. And so speak to us a little bit about how your passions actually turned into an expertise and employment. I got involved in publishing back in the late 80s when magazines were a good business to be in. And it really was in many ways of necessity because my fine art career, even though I pursued my painting and continued to do that, needed to get a job. And I decided to pursue design without a design degree. Nonetheless, I figure, well, this is something I'm going to educate myself in and proceeded to become a so-called graphic designer and art director and had some success there in the publishing arena, got a couple of great breaks and then hooked up with a fellow named Bill Curtis. And we've remained friends ever since. But in the day, I was essentially creative director for a number of publications. We had acquired one called Rob Report around 2001. I say we, I mean, the company had acquired that as one of its assets. It became apparent that as a part of restructuring the group within the magazine, we'd need to hire an auto editor. We had a wonderful man named Paul Dean who was at the helm for many years, but Paul was older and wanted to retire. So 
I sort of raised my hand and said, well, you know, I guess I know enough about cars to get us through the next few months and we'll hire some people and get on with it. And of course, you know how that goes. One thing leads to the next. And all of a sudden I found myself pitched into the world of automobiles, not so much as a hobbyist, which I'd been for many, many years, but as someone responsible for developing editorial content on a regular basis. And of course, that gave me an opportunity to meet some wonderful people and acquaint myself with even more and more wonderful cars. I think the audience would be nodding their head yes when they say that the things that they read from you, reviewing cars and so forth, are always done with great taste and good manners. And so much of writing today, I think, has changed because so many people have entered the writing arena with blogs and the internet and so forth. And I wonder what's happened to the art of the review and writing because so many things are snarky today and they almost feel like a bit of a hit piece where people, the audience is looking for the hit in it. And I found myself just smiling or reading some of your reviews. You were writing a book review about architecture and automobiles together. I think it was called Carchitecture. And I couldn't tell where the book left off and you picked up. I'm thinking, well, how much of this that Robert's telling us are his stories and how much are actually in the book? I got so much enjoyment out of reading about Adolf Luce. Then I think, well, wait a minute, or Elwell that had the Varum license plate on his car. I'm thinking, I bet you that's not even in the book. I think Ross is just giving that to us. And that's the joy of reading your reviews or things like that. Well, Eddie, that's funny because I'd actually just interviewed one of the authors of that great book. It was such a good book. I, I really wanted to have him on the show and also spread the word by way of Rob Report. I thought it was that good because so many car books are not. And you're right, Adolf Luce and his essay were not mentioned in the book, but I think it's always important to bring a little extra insight into anything that we talk about here. You, know, you talk about journalism, Eddie. I have no journalism degree. I never took a writing class in my life other than what I was forced to do in high school, which was as onerous as can be. So I think a lot of these things just sort of come about through trial and error. But I would agree that so little of what counts for automotive journalism today can be counted as such. I mean, I looked at some of the great writers that I used to read as a kid and then as an adult for whom I had great admiration. They were really wonderful storytellers. To me, the greatest of them all, I've probably used his name on the show before, was LJK Setright, an eccentric Englishman whose engineering expertise was only second, I think, to his observational skills. He was fascinating. Setright could talk about anything from engines to motorcycles to aviation. And that kind of breadth of expertise and an ability to really weave a story around it is what we just don't have so much of anymore. Guys like Peter Egan with Road and Track. I mean, what a great storyteller. Where have they gone? But then you could almost ask yourself, where have the cars gone? Ah. Where have the cars gone, Eddie? Because, <laughs> because maybe the cars that matter were the cars that we don't have around anymore as new cars. Cars have changed so much. Everything is so equal. Everything is so... Derivative. Everything is so derivative. There's so much interchangeability. You know, we talk about badge engineering a car. How about badge engineering a concept? It's all the same. Certainly, there's still considerable distinction between a Ferrari and a Lamborghini, and they're not mutually exclusive. And I think most people who own one are probably in a position to own the other. And they very likely do. But still, there's more of a sameness today than there's ever been. Do you think that platforming, that companies having platforms, I mean, I look at a Porsche 911 and I look at the old narrow body Porsche 911s and you kind of go, well, that's a sports car because it's so small. And then you almost see the photocopier form factor <laughs> shape language just adapted to a larger platform. And of course, Porsche people will freak out when I say that, but, and I'm not an expert on it, but I just look at these things on the road and I feel like I'll see an X-Type 
the old Jaguar XKE go by the other night. And this guy was driving it like a sports car on Sunset Boulevard. And I said, man, I'd sure like to be sitting in that chair because so much of it was distinctive. I think, you know, and maybe, but do you think that's the point of view of the design director or like what Steve Jobs was to the Apple Macintosh, having this signature, this distinctiveness that's in a Mustang or in a Jaguar, that we've lost that, that the same plinth has been wallpapered across every brand, you know? It's absolutely true for so many reasons. I mean, whether it's environmental legislation or, or safety legislation, I mean, there are any number of ways you can lay blame for the dumbing down and mediocrity of design relative to the freedom that could be exercised 20 or 30 years ago. Of course, that makes me sound like a crotchety old man, which I am, but it doesn't make me wrong. And it doesn't make you wrong for recognizing that a Jaguar E-Type is a more beautiful car than an F-Type. I have a newer 911. I parked a GT3 next to an old short wheelbase 911 the other day, and, and it, my car look like a monster compared to that thing. Doesn't it look huge? It's just the same horror that I recoiled with when I looked at a picture of myself and Jay Fisher and my other buddy Bruce Cohen that was taken when we were in college and I look at myself in the mirror today. Good Lord, I've gotten huge compared to them. <laughs> it just goes with the territory, it seems. Something that we have to kind of buck up to and live with it. But I think that's why everybody has to make room in their garage for an old car because they really do have a magic about them. They they do. And we're kind of an old car family, but I always compare that. I remember as a little boy, my father would say, you know what? There's no excuse for an ugly car on the road. We'd be sitting in the back. This is like in the 70s. There's no excuse. Of course, in the 70s, you could imagine that. There's no excuse for an ugly car. And I go, why is that, dad? He goes, who has more money than any other companies in the world? Automotive companies. What excuse do they have for ugly cars? Don't they know better by now? Anyway, that was just my dad. It was right. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter with Eddie Sato. What do you make good automotive writing today? Or since we have so many bloggers and people out there, so many voices, what makes good automotive, what goalposts are there today to really make a good review and a fair review for the reader? I remember in high school, junior high school homeroom, we'd bring in the latest road and track. And we'd pour over the zero to 60 numbers and the price and the specifications. And that was all fascinating. And to their credit, certainly road and track in its day was the 800 pound gorilla in the American automotive journalist sector. I mean, everybody grew up with road and track magazine. But but I think today, because there is such a universal application of technology, because performance is all so ubiquitous across the board, it's it's so impressive because safety is implemented from Kia to Cadillac to Rolls-Royce. What distinguishes cars are indeed the aesthetic underpinnings, but also the narrative, the kind of fairy tale that has to be woven around the mark. If it's a brand new mark, they've got a whole different set of challenges, a new company like a Tesla or a Kia. But if they're an older brand, and I don't like using the word brand, but I guess that's what they are, then I think there has to be some reference to the past and help me understand why this car is relevant by virtue of its history. What makes a Rolls-Royce 
interesting beyond its current state of technological affairs. What makes Alpha interesting? They're a 110-year-old company. What makes Maserati interesting? What makes all these companies interesting, I think, is their history and the way that they have evolved over time. And if they've done a good job of it, will have preserved the essence of their brand. If they haven't done a good job of it, then it's a bit of a fraudulent thing, isn't it? I think you really struck a chord with that because if you look at the internet and where the automotive business is going about people in their pajamas, knowing way more than the salesman knows what they show up at the dealership because they've spent seven nights reading about this car. What is left? What's the intangibles seem to be what's left. The feel of the leather, all the things you can describe. I remember just reading a recent Restomod review where he described a Mercedes sedan as being like a hippo crashing a ballet recital. I mean, they bring joy to the reader, but I feel like if I'm a customer, I can only look at the CGI of this car and spin it around on my computer so long. I want to know what I don't know. And I feel like the writer can can bring me to that. And of course, this seems to bring me to your creative agency, Ross Madrid, and what you do for these automotive clients. How does your passion and what you've written about and all this background, what does that bring to Ross Madrid and how you serve your clients? Talk a little bit about the company. Indeed, all of our clients are working within the luxury sector, and a few of them happen to be automotive OEMs. It was a natural progression, of course, because cars are so much a part of the personal landscape. But again, we have clients in the consumer electronics arena at the high End. We have some high-end wine makers as well, if that's an appropriate term. And again, it's because all these are personal passions. And I think it's easier to speak to something professionally when you have a deep down interest in it as one of the consumers. By way of cars, it's funny. I guess I kind of got into the car agency business, Eddie, with a call from a fellow back in the mid-2000s named Jim Selwa. And Jim was, at the time, had just left his job as president of Rolls-Royce North America, and we'd helped to launch the Phantom 7 in 2004 when it came out. He gave me a call one day and said, hey, Robert, I just got a job, president of Maserati in North America. He said, oh, that's interesting, Jim. I just bought one of your cars. Why didn't you tell me? I got you a deal. I said, well, I didn't know you were working there. <laughs> so he says, look, I just inherited an ad agency on Madison Avenue, but the creative director doesn't have a license and I wanted to talk to you guys. <laughs> So that, that was an opportunity to kind of break into the automotive sector and do it with a, a real passion and a sense of understanding. I think the other important thing when we work with our clients is that it's not just about creative and it's not just about language and marketing and, and weaving a narrative for whatever product it might be, but having enough technical chops to actually go hammer and tongs with engineers and with developers so that you can understand what makes a product special in whatever sector it is. So understanding enough about winemaking and understanding enough about electronic circuit topology or understanding enough about automotive suspensions, you have to do that to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. Certainly we're by no means degreed, but we're familiar enough to get ourselves in trouble when we need to. And I think that's important. Well, that's important to know because, you know, great partnerships are usually complementary skill sets. So why don't you give me a little bit of a sense of Roland Madrid how you met, and really what makes you two kind of a dynamic duo. Roland Madrid is a, a dear friend and my business partner. Our company's called Ross Madrid, and that explains that. Most people think there's a guy named Ross and his last name's Madrid, but that's okay too. What makes this a particularly dynamic relationship, I believe holds true with most relationships, whether or not it's romantic or whether or not it is in business or whether or not it's in a creative capacity. Great things happen when equals meet one another's match, but even greater things happen sometimes when there is a disparity in age so that people can not only bring intellect and observation and creativity to the 
equation, but they can bring a whole different set of life experiences. Now, Roland's 20 years younger than me. And to me, that makes it a fascinating combination because he grew up in a different time. He had different experiences. And putting two people together with very different experiences in life makes for an incredibly vital and dynamic creative cocktail. I, I think it's just great. It's it served me beautifully. So who tempers who in this relationship? I'd like to think he's the creative guy. And I think I bring a little of that kind of bird's eye view to the picture because let's face it, after 34 years, in whatever industry it is, you tend to have a lot of experiences under your belt, seen a lot of things. Well, I think it's really fascinating about your firm versus these sort of sloganeering ad agencies you see out there like, well, it's just, uh, it's the ultimate driving machine, or maybe we'll make it machine ultimate driving. Next year, that's what we'll call it. We'll call it machine ultimate driving. And you're like, yeah, and it's just, we're all just tone deaf to all the slogans and all the blurry images and all the, of the cars just screaming around. But I feel like it's very interesting that this is kind of like a buy fans for fans sort of situation where you are kind of the target market of some of these things, or you can be in the shoes of the customer because you have tasted the wines or you have listened to 25 different audio systems. And you may be closer to the products you represent than the actual manufacturer is because you're sort of an end user and they get too... I find brands I work with are, are usually way too close to their own product and they can't see things as other people see them. And then you have the young hubris of Roland who brings in kind of a fresh point of view toward that experience. It seems like a perfect match in a way. You touched on something that I bring up when I speak with clients or certainly prospective clients who they come to us and we'll say, well, why, why do you guys come to us? I mean, you're a winemaker. Don't you want to hire one agency that specializes in wines up in Northern California? Of course, the answer is, well, if you do that, you're just going to get another viewpoint from an agency that does nothing but wine. I think it's important to have that bigger picture view of a customer, a consumer. And I try to remind our clients all the time that they're thinking about their wine 24-7 and their client is not thinking about their wine 24-7. Their client's buying their wine. The client's buying a two, three, $400 bottle of wine. That's great, but he's not thinking about it all the time. He's drinking that wine when he has an opportunity to blow off a little steam, share it with some friends. But he's also thinking about the vacation house, the college education, the court cases that he's having to deal with. Maybe he's got this. Maybe he's got business troubles. Maybe he's buying a new business. Third vacation homes, being furnished, whatever he's doing. There's a lot on somebody's mind who is dealing with any of these products and bringing them into their life. Whether it's an automobile or a, or a bottle of wine, or a watch or whatever it happens to be. It's just one of many, many things that the consumer has to think about every day. They all work together. Luxury is a fairly ubiquitous thing and it exists in many, many different forms. Is that ever true? And when you look at luxury clients for the first time in forever, the same luxury client may go to Target for something, may go to Costco for something, but they also go and get the most expensive watch or whatever. And the people shop across spectrums and people in the media business want to be able to put somebody in a bucket and say, well, these people are in this bucket. They make this amount of money and this is how we talk to them and making this tiny refinement in our product is going to make a difference to them because we're so close to it. See, look, now it has the twist off cap. And they're like, well, no, they never noticed that you had the twist off cap. What they did care about was this other thing. So I think coming at it from a more experiential and much more holistic point of view, and I know holistic is something that in luxury is important to your company is this thing. And, and me too, frankly, we do experiential design is holistic thinking. So where is luxury going in your perspective, Robert? You're living 
living in that world. Where is it headed? Eddie, actually, I should kick that question back to you because you are the luxury experience guy and you're dealing in a lofty stratosphere as well with your aviation clients and whatnot. Well, I've given it all up to host a podcast. So, you know, <laughs> you should consider hosting a podcast, Robert. It would be, it would be great. <laughs> well, I am keeping my day job, but you're right. Eddie. It is loads of fun, especially this one. Where is luxury going? Wow. Luxury has been absolutely kicked off its throne over the last year. But then, of course, all of us have as well. We've had to completely reshift our imagination and our understanding of what luxury means, only insofar as uh, we haven't really been able to go anywhere until now. Things are lightening up a little bit. I don't know about you, but I put on exactly one sport coat in the last 12 months. That is something that is not like me because ordinarily I'd be in a position to have to wear a sport coat three, four times a week. So things have changed. I mean, luxury has changed. But funnily enough, the acquisitorial nature of people who have the resources to acquire has not seemed to have been diminished. I know that the fine art market has seen some incredibly robust performance over the last year. If anything, people could up in their jail cells at home, like Charlie Manson in a seven by seven box, have been more inclined to go online and buy stuff than ever before. So I think that while luxury vis-a-vis travel has certainly taken a hit, luxury vis-a-vis culinary experiences has certainly taken a hit, other types of tangible luxury goods have not necessarily suffered. I know that luxury high-end car business is going full tilt. Porsche can't make enough 911s. Name your poison. Robert and I still had more we wanted to discuss, including Robert's thoughts on the future of automotive collecting. So come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Eddie Sato, produced by Chris Porter, Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Eddie Sato. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.